especially in the entrepreneur space. A lot of people understand how to make money, but they don't necessarily know how to invest. Actually, this is the hardest thing. As an entrepreneur, I feel like it's very hard to keep the money. You're very close to one of the biggest NFT guys in the world, Gary Vee. What are the big factors that made him big and so successful? I feel like the number one thing in Gary Vee's case is his determination and his grit. As a personal brand, there's like just so many things you can do if someone is like an entrepreneur already has a running business, maybe a small team even, what would you recommend what to do and what not to do? I have a lot of what not to do. <laughs> hey, this is a new episode of Svencast and today we're talking to Esther Kiss. Welcome, Esther. Thank you so much, Sven. Really nice to be here. Thank you. So nice to have you. Um, you exactly, you're a PR and marketing expert. And with your company, Born to Influence, you help personal brands and experts to get more credibility, leads, and sales. Yes, that that's what I do. <laughs> that's awesome. Can you, can you tell me a little bit how you exactly do it? What, what's the service that you do? Yeah, so I work with entrepreneurs who have a personality-driven brand. Some of them have e-com businesses, but even so, the common thread between them is that there is a face to the brand, there is somebody who can tell a story. And so when we have a personality who is the expert who may or may not be the person providing the service themselves, they could have sub-coaches or software or whatever their business is, but they're the ones who are going out in the world giving interviews and providing helpful content. And so what I do and what my company does is we facilitate those connections for them so that they can go on TV, on radio and magazines, business publications like Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, podcasts, YouTube shows, whatever makes sense for them and, and their target market, we set up those interview opportunities for them. And so it's great for their branding and for making a bigger impact. But also, you know, as people listen to those shows or read those articles, they want to know more. And so that becomes part of their marketing process where they get more leads and sales. Well, thank you. That's very really cool because like this is like I'm I'm like then a potential customer for you because I'm exactly that. I'm like the face and personality of the company internationally, so in Germany as well and also in the US. Of course, we also have a CEO Francis, but I think I'm like a little bit more public than him. And mm -hmm. as of today, let's let's say and 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 I I'm always like in this let's say tension Uh, like, okay, there's this personal branch, we focus more on that, like the personal brand, Sven Platt, or should we uh, focus more on Digistore 24? And we, we even keep adding new softwares like Code Channel, which is like kind of like something like Kajabi and ClickFunnels. So, so it's mm -hmm. HBL a membership builder. Um, so we, we keep creating those brands. And for me, it's quite not super easy to to figure out like a brand strategy and to always decide which um brand to focus on like for, for me it's hard to decide like what's the best overall strategy uh, should there be just one focus should we focus on everything at once um i mean did you saw 24 is already a pretty big brand also given the fact that it's market leader in europe um, what's your take on this do you have clients like this or Is it yeah. like a typical problem? What do you think yeah, about you know, that? Yeah, I, I, I work with software companies. As an example, Ryan Levesque and his company, uh, Bucket.io, which is all about surveying your market. And the strategy that we did with him was he wrote a couple of books. And so I did the PR for his book launches is, of course, him and his story and also the methodology. And so the methodology, then when you want to implement it, it comes with using the software. So that would be very applicable to what you do as well, right? Like your story as an example, starting out in the medical field and then how you turned that and became an entrepreneur and this is what you do. And, and, you know, how can you reach more people? How can you digitize your expertise and sell that online? That becomes part of the methodology. And so um, Digital 24 is then baked in into that story, right? But people are listening to the expert. They're listening to the human. Otherwise, it's like, you know, reading an ad or listening to an ad. It, it doesn't have that same kind of emotional connection. 
I, I give you another example from the airline industry, right? So we know Richard Branson. He is always everywhere, the face of the brand. And then there are all the other airlines that don't have a CEO like this or, or a founder like that. And I literally cannot tell the difference. Like if you tell me U.S. Airways or American Airlines or any of them, there is just no distinction. Like I have no idea. I don't have any brand loyalty to which one I'm going to use when I'm flying next. I'm just looking at the logistics of those flights. Whereas if I were to fly with Virgin, I know what I'm getting and I'm really excited about that flight. And that has a lot to do with the personal brand that he's built up. So that that's very those are very interesting examples. It's just like, how, what should, for example, Richard Branson then focus on ideally? Should he focus on like pushing his personal brand? Should he focus on pushing the brand of Virgin XYZ? But he does Is it. He, he made it where it's so intertwined. When you hear Richard Branson, you think of Virgin automatically. But now he has the cruise line, he has our cruise ship, he has all the different things. But it came from him pushing innovative ideas when they when they were uh, really not something that other people has ever have ever tried before. Like as an example, when he was doing the uh, what is it called the, the record label that they had, the Virgin Mega Store. Remember when they were selling CDs in physical stores like back in the nineties? Like that was a thing that other people, other CD stores were not doing, or other music labels were not doing. That you would go there and listen to an example of a song. And so he was promoting that idea and the new experience and focusing on that experience really helped gain traction. I mean, that was really huge because not only did he have that store, he actually recorded with Virgin Records. Yeah. He actually recorded, you know, he had the artists, the singers, yeah. the bands, the, he had them at his place and they recorded that together. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and so absolutely. it's like... Out of one hand, yeah, I, I tend to think that in when it comes to social media, you should push the personal brand a little bit more, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as opposed to the company brand. If you have like beautiful things, um, like and and sometimes having a SaaS company, software as a service, I don't have I don't have material I don't really have material things to show. It's like mm -hmm. everything is in the cloud. So uh, I sometimes envy companies like Lamborghini uh, <laughs> or Rolex uh, uh, that can present like really nice stuff that you can take pictures of and then like, and then you can gain a lot of, uh, let's say, interest and attention, get a lot of attention for that stuff on, on social media. Uh, so I think a company like Digistore24 has to work with a strong personal, let's say, founder slash CEO brand in order to um, get some attention. And and that's why I'm, for example, doing this podcast. Um, yeah. As you know, there's like, you, you are a coach for this. So I, I feel I feel free to uh, um, yeah, ask you stupid questions like this. So, <laughs> so there's, there's like, as a personal brand, there, there's like just so many things you can do. You could create ebooks, online courses. You could do LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok. You could write a book, maybe even a bestseller. You could write a free plus shipping book, which would be like the book is free. You just pay for the for the um, sending for the shipping. You could do public speaking. You could TV you could do TV shows, press articles. Um, how would you go about this? Like, what? Do you recommend, like, if someone is like an entrepreneur, has a running business already, is not like very much at, at the beginning, but like already has a running business, maybe a small team even, um, what would you recommend? What of all these possible things, what to do and what not to do? And what to start first with and Ooh, focus on what, what not to I have on. a lot of what not to do. <laughs> well, yeah. what to do, uh, definitely you have to think about your goals. What are you looking to accomplish? Because we can really spread ourselves thin trying to be yeah. on every single platform all the time. And to gain momentum is going to be harder, even though you can repurpose some of your content to share it on multiple platforms. Still, if you really want to gain traction, you got to decide what is it that I want out of this, right? So as an yeah. example, if you're, you're, let's say you're, you wrote a book, right? You're, you're doing this free plus shipping book, right? 
I would say make sure, first of all, that you have an offer behind the book that once people read the book, they can buy something from you, right? Mm -hmm. And that offer needs to work. It needs to be tested. And so people know that you know your numbers, that this many leads will turn into this many clients. Because once you know those metrics, you know those metrics and you have some kind of a funnel in place, which mm-hmm. might be, for example, something that you facilitate on Digistore 24. It could be something where you know that if I write this book and I start promoting it and I go on all these TV shows and podcasts and radio and everything. I know how many people I'm reaching and I know how many people then will become clients. So I know how I can manage my ad spend. How many mm. people do I need to hire on my team to support that growth, right? So the mm. first thing is like you need to know what your numbers are and you need to have a working funnel or at least if you're a coach, for example, a high-end coach that does one-on-one clients, then you know the sales process. You have some kind of a system in place for that. So that would be the very fundamental thing. Let's say your goal is to promote this book and it's coming out. This is February now. I was going to say January. It's February now. So let's say you want to launch it in September, right? So now is the time to start promoting it. And a lot of people don't think about promoting their book until like two weeks before it launches, and it's Mm. too late then. And the reason for that is because all the shows have lead times, right? They have an editorial calendar. So as an example, if you want to go on a big podcast, it could be that we pitch you today and the interview will come out six months from now if it's a really big podcast, right? They, there is a lot of competition. And so they're booked out ahead of time. You want to line up the promotional partners. Now with TV and radio, it's a little bit different because they are more um, interested in mainstream news and what's trending in the mainstream media. So you would be looking at how can you tie your expertise into what they are interested in and talk about that in a timely manner. And then by the way, also I wrote the book about it, right? So the, being a, an author gives you a credibility to have an in with those media outlets, but you still have something that you have to still have something that is relevant to that media outlet in terms of news, make it newsworthy, right? So you have to think through your strategy and allow a lot of lead time for something like this. Okay, let's say let's say my uh, I'm a software entrepreneur. Yeah. I do have like kind of like a personal brand. I started a podcast. I why did I start a podcast? Because it's the most fun. Uh, because I like to meet people, and uh, it also has some let's say network opportunities, and it's also like you can create a lot of. Uh, I'm just sh- sharing my thoughts. Basically, you can create a lot of um, let's say content snippets that might be interesting, like excerpts from interesting conversations, like this one. And uh, so I thought it would be a great idea to do this. Um, if if I want to make that podcast, so obviously it's an audio and video format format already. You have also discussed this with uh, someone else in in one of your interviews that that uh, you were giving. That that was, that was pretty cool. Where you gave the tip, like, hey, let's add a video component. I think nowadays that that's quite smart. But like, how would you grow a podcast? I mean, we have all these tools. We could do, again, funnels, books, book funnels, um, radio, TV shows, maybe newspaper articles, online articles, et cetera, et cetera. If you were me, how would you grow this podcast? Mm -hmm. So a couple of ideas. One is for sure to invite guests who are worthy, who have either a good following or they have a very interesting and unique point of view on their expertise that will engage your audience and that will put the podcast in front of new audiences as well. That would be one. Another one is for you yourself to go and be a guest on other people's shows. Because once you put your podcast, for example, on iTunes and Apple, you know how when you go on Amazon and you buy something and then the bottom, it says that people who bought this also bought this other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. They show you examples. The same thing happens with podcasts where people who listen to this show also listen to this. And so the average person, the listener who listens to a podcast tends to listen to five other shows in that week. There is a lot of overlap. So for you to be a guest on other people's shows, you have that exposure to new audiences. They're already podcast listeners. You don't have to explain to them what a podcast is, right? They know and they're happy to get more content if they find it valuable. So imagine you go on someone else's show and you say that 
you share the story of Digistore and how you came to do what you do. And by the way, we also do a podcast where we interview really interesting entrepreneurs about these topics. Come check it out. And you give the the title of the show, Svencast. And, and the listener is like, hmm, I should check that out, right? And so you do that consistently. They keep hearing it. They will come over. And so that's one other way to grow your audience. And then, of course, the third one is to advertise. Okay, that's pretty cool. Thank you. How do I... Like, like uh, in my in my case, more people in Europe know me. Uh, that's not so much the case in US. How do I, like, how do I become a guest at other shows? Yeah. So uh, one thing one thing that you can do is to reach out to people who have their own shows or have someone on your team reach out. This mm-hmm. is something that we do with my company as well. So I'm certainly happy to to help you on that side. It's building relationships. You know, it's it's figuring out who has an audience that's similar to mine that would benefit from the content that you can share and the story that you can share. And then also figuring out what are those talking points that would be worthwhile for you to share that's a good match for that audience and that also is something that will help people come over to listen to your show, right? So, for example, um, uh, Rob mentioned that you are uh, very much interested in biohacking and productivity and maximizing value. So that's like a whole different new audience where you can go on the personal development shows and the biohacking shows and anything that has to do with, you know, with the... um, Uh, bulletproof coffee type of audiences and people who Mm -hmm. listen to that type of content or the mind valley type of audiences and then there's the whole other side of the internet marketers or people who are experts in marketing and they want to know how to grow a digital business there are all the people all the shows that are related to software they want to grow their software company so you would just think about what are some of the things that i can talk about and how can Mm. i pitch it to a show that would make that connection that yeah i gotta have this guy Mm -hmm. on Ah, that's an interesting. Yeah, that's that's very that's very interesting. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Um, like like, how long does it take to grow a podcast, in your opinion? And for what kind of people does it make sense to even start a podcast? Because it's like a huge commitment. It is. You know, I started my podcast back in 2013. So mm-hmm. you know, I felt like everybody had a podcast then. Now, definitely everybody has one. But it's interesting because there is more and more mainstream adoption. So Edison Pew Research does a survey every year called the Podcast Consumer. It goes back all the way to 2012. And so you can see when they conduct these surveys, they put it out publicly. There is like 40 slides of different charts showing the average household income and education and how much these people use social media and brand loyalty and all those things from the audiences. And you can see the growth over time. So as an example, if you are someone who sells uh, to a market, a niche market that is entrepreneurial, that is educated, that has at least a six-figure income per household, podcasters are your perfect target audience. Now, if you're Walmart, not necessarily, right? Because that's like very much a mass market kind of thing where they're looking, going for the cheapest price to, to sell their products, right? So that's not necessarily something where you would want to have a podcast, but for something like your business, absolutely it is. So I, I would definitely try, try and go that route. And then the other thing too is it makes a difference. So there are a lot of coaches, there are a lot of people who have software companies who have all these software startups, but they don't have a face to the brand. And so people don't have that connection and that trust that you can build by hosting a show and by being a guest on other people's shows. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the interesting things is like my perception is just like you described, like kind of like a modern day CEO in order to help his company the most with the most impact, also building relationships with the audience, the target audience, and maybe even the clients, because you cannot meet every each and every client. We got yeah. more than 1.5 million people signed up with our platform. That's just very hard to do for me, for example. Um, you can create this kind of like this personal connection, but it takes away a lot of my time to do a podcast show because mm-hmm. I, I, I need to prepare for uh, each and every guest, uh, there is like a preparation before and uh, and there's some work to do. After each and every show, uh, you got to promote that show and, and really bring everything in order. It feels like 
pretty much like a second business. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's really like that. I mean, you've been doing this for 10 years almost. Uh, what, what's your experience? Did, did you ever have thoughts like, hey, may, should I be doing this? Maybe I should just like focus more on funnels and just, and just uh, uh, and, and write a book like one time and then just sell it as often as possible versus creating a podcast with uh, guests and with uh, appointment coordination you know, and time. Yeah. If, if I knew what I know now, I would probably would have gone about it differently, but I didn't know. And so back then, I just knew that I have a background in marketing. And I found out about this whole world of online coaches and experts and people who work from home and, and sell their um, expertise as a service or as a product. And I thought, well, I want to play in that field. But how? I had no idea what I would offer. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. so I thought, well, I have to build relationships and I wanted to, you know, connect with people like Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, like people who are really the big players. And so I teamed up with a friend and had this genius idea to start a podcast because I thought if we have conversations, we will build those relationships and we'll figure out the business model after. So in my mm. case, it kind of started backwards, started with a podcast and the business came after that. And so what happened was, Every time I would interview someone who was a successful entrepreneur, at the end, once we stopped the recording, we would have a little bit of a chat. And I asked that, hey, I know you have this book coming out or you have this coaching program or this event that you're launching. Would you like to be on other shows as well? Just totally just, mm. you know, to help them out. And they always said yes. So I started introducing them and connecting them and booking them on all these different podcasts. And one of my clients came to me and he's like, hey, I have this guy, he was doing the Facebook ads for an author and he's like, he's the best-selling author. Can you help him get on some more shows? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And he's like, yeah, but this time you have to charge for it. <laughs> so I literally had to Google, okay, how do I price this? And figured out the, the business model from there. And it grew into an agency that we have today that we do traditional media, TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, a lot of podcasts, especially for niche audiences, And then LinkedIn live shows, Zoom chats, Facebook masterminds. It just depends on what makes sense for the person. But it really came after we already had a podcast because I saw what there was a need for and a demand for. Yeah, it's actually a demand. Like when you, I mean, there's so many people creating podcasts and there are some people who are successful who want to support their businesses by doing that podcast like myself. And then, of course, you're asking yourself like, okay, uh, how can I get faster to like, How can I grow it faster? How how can I get more successful, um, become more successful uh, than than I would no normally be? And uh, like going, um, and this acceleration is kind of like um, I I had I had mid mixed feelings honestly about this. I was like, hey, I kind of have to earn my way up. I don't, you know, I, I would feel stupid starting a podcast and like one of my first guests would be, I don't, I, I'm over uh, doing it a little bit just like to make my point. If I had, uh, I don't know, Donald Trump, Barack Obama and Paris Hilton on, on as, as the first three guests, it would be a bit weird in my opinion. So I figured like, okay, I should have like, You know, I would I should start like with with maybe people who are who don't have that big of an audience, who are not that famous, and maybe at some he famous people here and there later after I really earned my uh, uh, did my work and and paid my dues. Uh, what do you think about that? Should someone like get as a strategy get people with a big reach and, and maybe if they have money, like maybe pay for that and get like those kinds of clients. Uh, those kinds of guests to the show or should they start slow and, and, and small like like I'm thinking because like my thinking is like build like a small foundation and do a lot of work there and then have like mm -hmm. bigger and bigger guests over time and then the bigger mm -hmm. guests later on. How do you see that? 
So it depends on who you are and what your platform is. So for you specifically, because you already have a significant size email list, you have a lot of customers, I don't see a problem with reaching out to big name guests, right? I don't think that you necessarily have to work your way up. If somebody is a complete beginner, they have no following, nothing at all, it's going to be harder for them now. Then compared to like 10 years ago, I was able to get Gary Vee on my show when we didn't even have a website. The, the show hasn't even launched yet, right? But it was also at the time when he was promoting a book and he committed for a whole year mm-hmm. to do every single show and interview that he could. So it just kind of worked out. Today, what I would say is if you have something that you can show that this is how many people I'm going to reach with my audience, even if the podcast is new, Mm-hmm. Still, they know that they're going to um, get new eyeballs on their content, right? And on their interviews. So it's going to be a win-win for both. I don't think that you necessarily have to ladder, step ladder your way up. Whereas if somebody is brand new and they don't have that following, the way they can counter, they, they can work around that is they say, I, for example, have this much money that I'm putting into advertising. So this is the expected reach that we think mm-hmm. we will get. Even though it's a new show, we know that we'll get it in front of, I don't know, 100,000 people a month, as an example, right? Because we're going to advertise. So there are ways to get that. Now, there is a, a drawback to this because it can lead people into only wanting to have the big guests. Yeah. And that doesn't work because a lot no. of people are booked out many, many months in advance. So for you to line up enough and produce those shows in a timely manner is going to be really hard. So what I would say is focus on the person and their content and then secondarily to how much reach they have. So is it a good person? Is it going to be a valuable contact for me? Can we do other promotions together? Can they promote my webinars? Can we do some kind of a collaboration? Is their point of view interesting? Are they talking about something that my audience would absolutely love, right? And then if they have a great following, that's, that's a given bonus. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it really depends on how much value you can offer to them. And the more value you also can offer to them, the more motivated they tend to be, the bigger your own audience. It's, it's like success creates success, right? Success yeah. Attracts success. It's, it's yeah. kind of like that. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very interesting. Um, you, you are a business coach and in that like function so so you do a lot of things you do podcasting uh you are like uh you're helping people with pr and with getting more reach uh building personal brands uh but you also i've read i read it on your uh, website you're also like some uh, some kind of financial coach you're also helping people with finances so that's a lot of things that you do um how do you manage your time how do you get all this done because it's like it feels like it reads like you're doing three jobs in one yeah (laughs) so i don't do much coaching there is coaching opportunity for those who really want it who are not in a position to hire somebody to do the service for them the publicity service for them really Mm -hmm. my bread and butter is the done for you services on the publicity side so we get them set up with these interview opportunities that we talked about. That's really the main thing. And then I've developed the coaching and the online programs and everything for people who are not quite in a position to hire us for done for you, but they want to learn the skills to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's really more of a passive thing, kind of like a downsell kind of thing, right? So it doesn't necessarily take up actively my time. And then as far as the financial stuff, Oh, let, let me address the coaching. So coaching, again, is kind of part of the done-for-you services because if I have a guest, as an example, as a client who wants to be a guest on a TV show and they've never done TV, we do have to do media training because we have to make sure that they know how to present themselves, talk in sound bites, right, and, and to be able to look good on camera and talk in a way mm. that users will actually want to have them on that show. So the coaching comes in as part of the done-for-you service there as well. And as far as the financial stuff, I I just really like, you know, personal finance. That's a topic that I'm interested in. When I first moved to the U.S. for 14 years ago, that's how I was making my living because I couldn't work here, right? So Mm -hmm. I came here as a student, and so I was doing day trading on the stock market. And and that's just something that I like, and I was able to support myself. And so what I'm looking to do as kind of a side hobby is to 
launch a YouTube channel on personal finance? Because I feel like, especially in the entrepreneur space, a lot of people understand how to make money, but they don't necessarily know how to invest. And how that to keep kind it. of keeps them on the treadmill for a long time. Actually, this is the hardest thing. Yeah. It, like, <laughs> like uh, as an entrepreneur, I feel like it's, it's, it's very hard to keep the money. It's very hard yeah. because, yeah. because there's so many opportunities coming that look great, that look awesome, but in, in practice, it's quite difficult. For example, uh, my, my own situation, I, I went to like a few, few years ago, I think six years ago, like not six years ago, it was like four years ago. Um, I went to Thailand, to Phuket, to train some Muay Thai. It was all fun. Mm -hmm. And they had this, um, they presented me this new project. And they had like a hotel in the lux in a, some luxury beach in Surin Beach in, in uh, Phuket, and a really nice hotel. And they they sell they sold apartments in that hotel, and they would have like a ref share model. They would um, take, clean and take care of the rooms, and market the rooms and like rent them out. And we would do a ref share deal, which means seven seventy percent, seven zero percent for me, and thirty percent for them. That's fine. So they were built. It took a few years because it was quite a big project. And as with every real estate project and construction it takes a few years. So it took like maybe two and a half years, three years or so. And then it was like almost about to open. I wanted to fly there and I wanted to check it out. And, and then COVID came. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing was closed down. And ever since yeah. it's closed and there's no gas and nothing. Sure. So there's yeah. like... There's like seven figures of my money <laughs> just laying there yeah. and that's it. So, and I was like, fuck, it's really, it's really not easy to invest. And yeah. um, so, so I can really understand how hard it is. And also my entrepreneur friends, uh, they're very successful at making money, but, but they all, they all don't have a clue how, how to keep it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you kind of have to, because I, I just yeah. remember back in business school, like, it's it's so different when you look at the traditional way of of educating people on how to grow and build a business versus what we hear in the online marketing space. Because I feel like in the coaching world, it's all about making an impact, making a difference, doing what you love, right? It's all about focusing on the active part of building a business. It's never looking at the yeah. end game of how can I sell this business eventually. Whereas I remember when I was in college, the very first question was, what's your exit strategy? Who are you building this business for that you can sell it mm -hmm. to, right? And so that's a big thing that if you're not going into it with that mindset, you will never be interested in learning about personal finance since you, no matter how successful you are, your presence will be required in that business all the time. And it makes it harder to take a step back when you want to. Yeah, like my personal philosophy on this like I try to approach everything, every problem, also problems like this with like my common sense. This is like mm -hmm. my, because I cannot read books about everything. It's just way too much. And I, <laughs> I, I'm not a very fast reader, even though I tried uh, to learn it, speed reading, but it's just like, yeah. I ju that just doesn't, I can't, I might, I might be able to read it fast, but that doesn't stick in my head. It, it doesn't mm -hmm. last. So yeah. So my, my thing was, okay, if I want to, for example, if I'm a millionaire and I want to stay, like, I, I want to keep that title millionaire, I buy gold in the value of millions mm -hmm. and I never touch it. I lock it away from myself. <laughs> I never touch it, never again. So therefore it's guaranteed I will always be a millionaire. Like mm -hmm. no matter what, what happens, like if all banks crash, if, if I don't have it like in a bank, uh, if, if anything happens, I will always be a millionaire. That's, that's the bottom line. At least be a millionaire. That's mm -hmm. like, okay. So we got that down. And then it's like, okay, then have like some safe investments, some things that are not exciting, um, but they're like quite safe. This could be blue chip stocks, like from companies that have been around, um, that are very old and uh, that w will also survive uh, crashes and stuff like that. There's companies like that. And, and I'm not talking, for example, about Tesla. Tesla is relatively new, even though it's, I ha also had invested in it, but um, it, I just don't understand their 
value and they're uh, I don't understand I understand why they're valuable I just don't understand the development of their value and how they can be more valuable than all other car manufacturers combined it's just just a little bit like a little bit weird to me so I don't 100% understand it um but I would say get find a lot of boring investments, like really boring ones that might pay pay you a dividend. And um, there's a lot of infrastructure companies that do that, and they're not exciting. They're not like AI companies or Tesla or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you can have like some high risk things, and the high risk things. This is like really exciting stuff. For example, um, crypto and NFTs. Mm-hmm. Maybe what what do you think of NFTs? So I've dabbled in it. I I mean I shouldn't say dabble. I looked into it only because I have a client who is an artist who has been art, an art, a really well known artist for decades, and you know his collection that he's created in the digital media art back when you know when you had to manually code everything on a computer in the seventies and eighties. Like it's it's real history. So LACMA mm-hmm. they you know, the Los Angeles County Museum uh, is exhibiting his work and the Paris Pompidou is interested in his, like a real prestigious level art. I think that that type of digital art would make sense to digitize as an NFT because there is Mm -hmm. that prestige and the ownership for museums. Now, what we see today with, you know, with the Minecraft little pixelated (laughs) images and that becomes somehow something that worth tens of thousands of dollars, that's, you know, I, I feel like there is a fad element to it for sure, because a lot of people don't understand the fundamental value proposition of what it means mm-hmm. to purely own something. If you look at it in terms of the utility, as an example, I think it was, yeah, it was IBM who is creating NFTs out of their trademarks. Imagine the utility ah. of that, like not their patents. They don't have to go through 20 lawyers every time they're acquiring something, right? They can just simply do it with the transaction of an NFT. That has utility. Or if you look at real art, like not the cartoon stuff, right? But like actual art, like as an example, I remember reading a story of um, how somehow there was a, a package that got lost in the mail in the 1600s and they just mm. recently found it. And it was like this big box of letters that people have sent to each other, right? It's like the post office back then somehow lost it. And back then people didn't have envelopes. So the way they wrote letters was that they fo- they wrote the letter and then they folded it and then you had to unfold it and read it. But because it's so old, now you cannot unfold it <laughs> because then it will break, it will fall apart. Like imagine turning that into an NFT and now you have something that is hundreds of years old and Perhaps it belonged to an important person. It was an interesting piece of correspondence. Now they have, you know, technology where they can x-ray it and try to figure out and piece it together without physically opening it. There is room for technology to play in that, in the in the um, commercializing of that, right? So right now, this particular box of mail that was found is in the uh, uh, in the Hague in the Museum of Communications. Very interesting as an exhibit, but no one can really play with it. But if you wanted, or if the museum wanted to make money with it, they could potentially turn it into NFTs and sell it in an auction, just how they would sell a Picasso, right? Hmm. This is interesting. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about these types of artworks mm-hmm. is. There's there's several layers why this is interesting. One part is that the the item, the asset doesn't have to be moved. Yes. So it it remains in a let's say a safe place like a super safe storage wherever that has like guards and is maybe underground like some people store their bitcoin bitcoins in in like with some companies in Switzerland in the Swiss Alps like yeah. where there's like a bunker with big vaults and like an uh like a nuclear bomb could be thrown there and it would yeah. still exist stuff like that uh so it, the asset wouldn't have to be moved actually you would mm-hmm. just transfer the ownership that's interesting for for like the security and mm-hmm. the fact that it doesn't have to be moved Mm-hmm. And this, and secondly, um, if it's for example in a free zone, like a tax-free zone, yeah. and there is like all kinds of those everywhere, it 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 uh, it might be tax-free. Yeah, the sale yeah. might be tax-free, and they also haven't figured out, in my opinion, 
the taxes and and sales tax and stuff like that with via, with NFTs because it's, this it, is a it's big very topic. interesting because every every um, every country has their own tax rules, right? So yeah, as an example. We talk about it in the mainstream as cryptocurrencies, right? We consider it a currency, but the way at least the IRS looks at it is property. So what mm. that means is anytime you make an exchange from fiat currency, from dollars, for example, into Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever you're buying, every time there is a transaction to the regular money, then you're taxed on those gains, which is, in my opinion, the stupidest thing, but they got to... They, they, they have to get their buys of it too. On the other hand, the IRS just came out with this new ruling where if you're staking crypto, so you're earning interest basically on crypto mm -hmm. because it's not in dollars, they're not taxing that. So you're winning yeah. that. I, I mean, I mean, for, for yeah, that, that's exactly something I'm thinking about. Like if, if you, if, if, it, if that's the case, then you're buying, for example, all NFTs pretty much are bought with Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So if you're buying like, uh, I don't know, a Bored Ape NFT with like, and pay 100 ETH for it, and now it's worth 200 ETH and you sell it, and it still is in Ethereum and not in US dollars, that would, in my, with my interpretation, if I understand you correctly, that's not taxable yet. It's taxable once you change the ETH back to US dollars. Is that correct? Because it's property. It's still I, property. I know that it applies to staking. I don't know if it applies to NFTs. They they specifically studied about staking, which is where yeah. you're not drawing it back. Not but but it, but it, but if the if Project Ethereum, it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, of course, yeah. I'm not an expert on this. That's why I'm asking like these yeah. naive and stupid questions. But but if it's like if Ethereum, if ETH is like a property, just like mm -hmm. I don't know a tree. Mm -hmm. And let's say I take this tree and I exchange it for a goose mm -hmm. and the goose grows and right. I exchange it back to and get two trees. Yeah. Does the, the government I, I won't think, say? The I, government I would won't think that that's, yeah, that they shouldn't be able to tax it. I mean, no. obviously you would have to talk to your CPA to but, know for but sure. Once but once I take all this ETH and exchange it back to an actual currency, be it US dollars or euros, then in my interpretation, the tax would be, get get like yeah, that's active. that's how we understood like, it applicable. as well. At least this the American is... tax system, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's so fascinating because you know I'm being digital twenty four. I'm very very like deep in all those taxations. Of course, we don't sell cryptocurrency stuff yet, but um, but this might be a topic that will come up in the future. It is basically a topic that will come up in it the future, is. so I'm very interested. You're very close to one of the biggest NFT guys in the world, Gary V. He's like, yeah. you know, do, do you know about he V Friends? Got like, like 90 million dollars or something on his <laughs> NFTs. Yeah. yeah, like he released V Friends, made like 91 million dollars yeah. within seven days, and I think on average per night he makes because he's in a smart contract, when they get traded, he makes 200K, like just being in but, a smart but contract. But that's the thing, that that comes to having built a personal brand. And so there is that hype aspect of it, because if I came up with the exact same thing, people would not give a crap, like nobody would no. buy it. But because he's already well known, there is that inherent trust that it's got to be good. And there is the reach of the audience. It's, it's all about community. Like it's yeah. it's just another way to leverage your community. Um, yeah. uh, which which like, what would you say? Like, what are the big factors that made him big and so successful? Like, what what can someone do who has a lot of ambition to become so, so successful? Being a so, personal brand, right? Um, I feel like the number one thing in, in Gary V's case is his determination and his grit. 
and he is really willing to put in the work because now, of course, he has a huge team with hundreds of people. He doesn't have to physically do everything. But there was a time when his parents had a little liquor store right in New Jersey and yeah. YouTube just came out and he was doing the wine library show where he would yeah. taste a glass of wine every single day and explain it in layman's terms where people would understand. And most people in 2005 didn't even know what YouTube was. <laughs> so I don't know how many views he had, but very few, right? Now today, he could probably turn those videos and sell them as NFTs and it would be collectible. But, you know, like back then, it was like really putting in the work to reach a wide audience. And I feel like he really has a knack for understanding what's popular in pop culture and then connecting his business acumen to that. So NFTs would be an example, right? He understands that it's, yeah. it's something that people are interested in now. But like... Three years ago, if you look at that, he, he was doing an investment fund where people would come and pitch ideas to him and he would invest in them. And then, and then they got that shut down because he just didn't have the bandwidth to deal with everything. So yeah. um, I feel like it's his understanding of what's popular and then connecting that to his solid understanding of business fundamentals and marketing. Yeah, that's I, I, I get that. And I agree with that. I think the challenge nowadays is that all these channels... For example, YouTube, it's very hard to be, to uh, become big on YouTube like nowadays because it's flooded. It's flooded with content and YouTube's interest is to only, let's say, showcase the, the content that's A, being paid for or B, really, really relevant and gets traction in and of itself. So that's and especially when you're a beginner, that's quite hard to do because you just get you got to find out first what your audience likes over time, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to make all kinds of mistakes. and then learn from it later on. Um, how do you solve that problem of like all these platforms, Instagram, uh, YouTube, they're so crowded already with content. How can you still grow there by posting content pieces? Like how, well, how can you do that? It's, it's really not my expertise, but I can tell you what my understanding of it is, mm -hmm. particularly for YouTube. The old school way of looking at it was creating how-to content, especially if you're a coach type of a person, you're an expert mm -hmm. and you want people to find you, then you're like, how do I do this and solve a problem? And that works to a degree, but it's not going to reach a mainstream audience, right? So you got to connect no. it to what's trending because otherwise it's, it's hard. Uh, and then if you look at it, like, for example, if you put... Let's say we are talking about a financial topic, right? And you put uh, Michael Saylor's picture mm -hmm. on your thumbnail, whether or not you're involving him in, an, in a discussion, doing an interview, just the fact that you put him there works in two ways. One is people see it. You might be doing mm -hmm. a quote and an analysis of his opinion on something or what, you know, what his company is doing, whatever, but you're putting him on there. It works because psychologically people, as they see it, they react to it. But it also works in, in terms of the algorithm because the algorithm analyzes the thumbnail too and they recognize his face and they uh -huh. see the transcript of what you said in your video and now they know who to show it to. Interesting. And that's a very good tip. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. That, that's really cool. Um, like you've worked with all these famous people Uh, what's like for anyone who wants to start a personal brand? What's your like best tip on how to get started? What's the most effective in your opinion? I, I feel like the, the really important thing is to understand what you stand for and what you stand against and mm -hmm. to make sure that you kind of outline for yourself that these are the topics that I'm really happy to talk about that are important, that will make a difference and that will also draw people in. So they want to join my Facebook group, opt into my email list, whatever it is that you're offering, mm -hmm. read my book, whatever. And then there is the other side of it, too, is how can I make myself useful to other people so that when they hear me talk about this topic, they will share it? Because it's one thing that I'm interested in it, and I'm going to come back to this channel all the time or this podcast all the time. But also, how can I make it so that people want to share this with their friends? So if I'm a health coach and I'm explaining um, intermittent fasting, for example, that's a very popular topic, but it's also something that has been covered a lot, right? So I yeah. have to have something that's unique to the way I explain it or something that I've discovered or something that is 
that clicks with people in a way that they haven't heard before and make it so that when they have somebody else who they know is struggling with energy or weight or whatever, they want to send that interview and that article to them. So make it easy to share, make it simple to remember, mm. make it so that when, like, as an example, if you're a guest on a podcast, right, most podcasters are not trained journalists. So that's good and bad, right? And the good thing is that you have a lot of time. It's very different than doing a TV interview where, you know, it, it goes really fast. You have two or three minutes, including the questions, and you really have to be on point. On a podcast, you have 20, 30 minutes, an hour that you really can go in depth. But the podcaster himself or herself is not somebody who knows really how to ask questions in a way that will create a compelling interview. So what mm. you need to understand as a guest that it's in you to make it entertaining and effective. And how do you do that? Two things. Most people tend to ask as a podcaster or as, a, or as a, some kind of an online platform show host, tend to ask questions based on how they like to learn. So some people will ask about stories, you know, how did you come to do what you do? Tell me an example when, uh, what do you think about this? Like that kind of story driven uh, plot line. And then other people will ask, how do you do this? Like, tell me the nitty gritty, the steps, exactly what I need to do. And so your job as a guest is to understand that you need to do both. So for example, if somebody asks you, how do you do this? You know, how do you create a compelling sales letter? Like what is the secret deal winning headline? Well, these are the three things that you have to do. You tell them Mm -hmm. one, two, three, and this is what exactly we did with my client. I I can share it through an example. So you tell a story and you give them the one, two, three, right? And so the other way around as well, if they ask you a story, you tell them the story, you tell them exactly what you think or what your opinion is about this topic. And by the way, the takeaway for our audience is these key things. You have to pay attention to this. So you want to balance the story and the how-to because that way it's not just intellectual entertainment for people. They listen, listen, they like it, and they don't take the next step to opt into your email, to buy your book, to join your Facebook group, right? But at mm-hmm. the same time, if it's only stories and and they or if you don't have the stories, then it's just too dry. It feels like a lecture, right? So it's got to be compelling. It's got to have both. Thank you so much. That was amazing. If someone wants to learn more about you or get in touch with you, how can they reach you and see and or see you the best? Yeah, you can connect with me through through my website, borntoinfluence.com. And if you feel like you want to go to to get media opportunities, be featured on TV, magazines, podcasts, reach out to me, Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R, at borntoinfluence.com. Esther, thank you so much for the for this uh, conversation and your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm already looking forward to the next time. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode of Svencast again.